Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. I'm speaking to you the morning of September 30th, uh, the morning after the debate that will go down in history uh, as one of our most awful moments in terms of our democracy because of one Donald J. Trump. So let me start by saying um, it was a debate that was terrible and hard to watch for one reason, Donald Trump. Of course, there's some things the commission may be able to change going forward, the Commission on Presidential Debates. I'm sure there's some things that Chris Wallace could have done differently. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump decided to hijack the debate and turn it into just a nasty, ugly affair. I'll get to his strategy in a minute. I want to start with where the race is. So Joe Biden has a lead. It has been stable and significant, really going back to the beginning of the year, even pre-pandemic. So Donald Trump needs to do the following to win the election. Basically, have a massive turnout differential between himself and Joe Biden, win all the remaining undecided voters, and because Biden is at 49, 50, 51 in a lot of these battlegrounds, he needs to pull voters away who right now are saying they're going to vote for Joe Biden. Now, of course, some people have already voted, like 10% of the vote in Wisconsin is already in as people are voting by mail and voting early. So I don't think Donald Trump did a single thing to help him with any swing voters pulling vote off Biden. Uh, it's not just his mishandling of the pandemic that people don't like. They hate his obnoxiousness. They hate him being in our face all the time. They hate that he's a jerk. And he just doubled down on that. So I think the only strategy here from Donald Trump's standpoint would be to make the whole debate and the rest of the election so ugly that a lot of people decide not to vote. So that is our task is to make sure that uh, people stay the course here and exercise their right to vote. Um, I also think he's trying to set up clearly um, a scenario where he loses the election and he decides that he will contest that. He won't concede. It was stolen from him. And um, the uglier the race is here in the closing weeks, uh, the better off. I mean, he was getting his troops ready for battle by telling the Proud Boys to stand by for whatever comes next. Really a horrible moment, uh, not just in this campaign, but in American history. So I know there's an active discussion, uh, at least on social media, about whether Joe Biden should vote debate going forward. First of all, his campaign's already said he would, and that's the right decision. you got to run through the tape. Uh, there's no shortcuts here. And this debate did not help Donald Trump. And the next debate is a town hall debate. It'll be modified because of the pandemic, but you're still going to have people in masks uh, asking citizens in Florida, asking these two people questions. And if Donald Trump brings that same performance, obnoxiousness, not listening to people uh, to a debate in front of his fellow citizens, it'll be double the disaster. It'll probably be harder for us all to watch, but it'll be terrible for him. The third debate is more traditional, uh, hosted by a Christian Welker from NBC. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's also going to be a challenge. You've got a female moderator. Uh, Donald Trump clearly has issues with women. So um, as obnoxious as he was to Joe Biden and Chris Wallace, he'll probably be doubly so. So, um, you know, Trump's the one who's had to change. I was part of a presidential campaign back in 2012, an incumbent's re-election, where we did not have a good first debate. And so the challenge is, how do you change that? How do you improve on your performance? I'm sure Donald Trump's campaign will tell him that didn't go very well. The data we're getting back is not positive. He probably won't believe it. Um, he's got enough uh, sycophants out there saying he was awesome that he'll probably just double down. So uh, these are going to be painful to watch, but watch we must and just understand that it's not helping Donald Trump's cause. I think Joe Biden did about as well as any human being could do with a monster like that across the stage from him. 
And I do think he looked at the camera many times and talked to the American people directly about issues that would concern them. He had some powerful moments around the pandemic. I thought in particular when he criticized Donald Trump for saying a lot when Donald Trump was told that a lot of people had died. I can't remember if that was when we crossed 100,000 or 150,000. He said memorably, it is what it is. And Joe Biden in the debate said, it is what it is because you are who you are. Very strong moment. Um, I think with debates, uh, now there's some things I think Joe Biden should improve on. And I say this having gone through debates, you never have a debate that goes 100% as well as you would like it. I think Joe Biden could really up the stakes more on climate change. He did a good job of talking about the economic side of this and a little bit about pollution, but I think he could really up the stakes in a powerful way. And I thought the last uh, part of the debate around our democracy and voting and the election um, is a chance for Joe Biden uh, just to basically tear Donald Trump to shreds. Uh, because most people uh, believe the winner of the election, the person who gets the most votes in enough states should be uh, the president. Donald Trump clearly doesn't believe that. Um, Joe Biden, I think, would be really effective talking more about mail because, first of all, Donald Trump's going to vote by mail. Uh, he's done it historically. Second of all, none of the battleground states are sending ballots out to all um, voters. You have to apply. Donald Trump says he's fine with that. So call him on that and say uh, there may be some red states and blue states that are going to do that, but none of the purple states, pal. So um, it has nothing to do with our election. Um, but I think generally to really make him pay a price for uh, trying to erode the very foundations of our democracy. I think that could be a really, really powerful moment. And maybe the town hall is the place to do it because you're talking directly to American people about the fact that this guy will not accept the results of the election. And I do think it's really important to get to the motive. The New York Times tax story really points out why. Okay, this guy is hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billion dollars in debt. We do need to find out who that is, by the way. So I hope that's part of the next debates. Who is he in hock to? Um, and this is a guy who uh, we now know if it wasn't for The Apprentice, um, you know, his entire business enterprise would have crashed. And so now we know why he doesn't want to leave. He sees the White House as a safe house. He leaves the White House as a kind of a disgraced figure where, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the world can't stand him. So it's going to be really hard for him to strike the kind of business deals he did previously. He's just going to be too toxic. And he's got huge payments that he's personally responsible for looming. There's clearly going to be investigations of he and his family. So he wants the protection of the White House. This isn't about staying in power to do things with the office. It's about staying in power to protect himself from what comes on the other side. And I think Biden could really point that out. Um, so I, I'm looking forward, uh, you know, as, as the Biden debate team uh, focuses on what they did well, what they can improve, how Trump may change. Uh, I think they can really... Um, continue to advance the ball in, in debates two and three. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and again, I thought his calmness under that barrage and assault uh, was remarkable. The other thing that was remarkable was, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump, when Joe Biden talked so powerfully and emotionally about his son, Beau, who'd served in Iraq, uh, won the Bronze Star, um, died tragically of, of brain cancer. You know, Donald Trump didn't even acknowledge it, just went on to attack his other son. Uh, and, you know, I got to tell you, for anybody out there who was thinking, well, I, I, you know, I'm not sure about this election. Uh, I've still got to hear more from Biden and maybe I'll hear something from Trump that'll make me vote for him. Like that seals the deal for a lot of people. Um, it was uh, really just an inhuman um, moment, um, which is, you know, coming from Trump, maybe you can expect it, but it's kind of built into our DNA. Uh, when someone talks about a, a loved one who's been lost to express some sympathy, and he just doesn't have that. 
Um, he's a he's a narcissist. He's a sociopath. Um, and sadly, I think the thing we're all probably reflecting on is that was our president. This is the guy who's still making decisions, who has enormous power as the nuclear codes. Uh, and he's not just the worst president in American history, as Joe Biden said. He's one of the worst people on the planet. And he happens to be in the most powerful office the world's ever known. So hopefully as ugly as the debate was, it's motivation for everybody to do everything they can over the next 33 days, poll watching, um, volunteering, GOTV calls, uh, you know, to make sure that this election gets won. You know, I'm going to talk today with Barton Gelman. Many of you know him. He was a Washington Post reporter for a long time. He's written a number of terrific books and bestsellers, um, has been on the national security beat, was very, uh, gave us a great, um, painful, uh, on the ground uh, account of 9-11 when he was in New York, has really spent a lot of time on the intelligence um, beat. But he wrote a story uh, in The Atlantic a couple weeks ago uh, called The Election That Could Break America. And... Um, it was a startling story I've heard from a lot of people who are disturbed by it, who don't want to believe that, you know, once the election's over, we're still going to have to face efforts from Donald Trump to stay in office. So, um, and some people probably won't like me having this discussion on the podcast because they don't want to give it any more oxygen. I'd say, first of all, we can't turn away from hard things, things we don't like. Uh, Donald Trump has taught us that basically what he says is what he will do. Uh, and so let's compartmentalize. Let's do everything we can over the next 33 days to have a great election, but also understand that there's going to still be drama in front of us. And that's why I want to talk to Bart Gelman. Now, my sense is if, if it's clear that Joe Biden won the election, whether it's that night uh, or, or later in the week of November, the you know, maybe it's November 5th, November 6th, um, you know, I think, and I may regret these words, that the system will hold. That Donald Trump can say whatever he wants and Sean Hannity can echo it. Um, and, you know, certainly uh, Russia today uh, will be echoing it and there'll be lots of disinformation on social media. But at the end of the day, the system will hold and Joe Biden will be elected president. We'll see if Barton agrees with that. But for me, the question would be if this ends up being a lot closer than po- polls suggest it would be as close as 16 or closer. What could Donald Trump do? even if Joe Biden wins that election, to try and stay in power. And I I think it's clear from Bart's article that there's a lot he can do, that they're planning to do. So this will be an unpleasant discussion, but I think we have to talk about the post-election period, if for no other reason to give us motivation uh, to make sure we win. Um, and I'm a little disturbed, by the way, that Trump is moving the goalposts. I mean, now it's almost taken as a, a fact that, well, if, if if Biden wins by a lot or a landslide, everything will be okay. But if it's if he doesn't, if it's close, you know, Trump could steal it. You know, that's not the way our system's supposed to work, um, and it's going would be put to a severe test. You know, you you win a close race, uh, you become the president, and um, uh, Joe Biden shouldn't have to win by a landslide. Uh, but there's no doubt the more clear the election victory is, the more oxygen gets taken out of the room on Trump's effort to steal. Because I believe, you know, and Bart Gelman just states in his article he believes Donald Trump will never concede, and I agree that. Uh, you know, Joe Biden could win Wisconsin by four points, Pennsylvania by five points, Michigan by eight points, Arizona by three points, Florida by two points. He's won. Republican elected officials are saying it's over. Um, and Donald Trump will say, I didn't lose. Um, I was ahead on election night, or even if I wasn't, it was stolen from me. And that's what he's setting up. 
Um, I think both because he's incapable of admitting defeat, but also I think he wants to preserve his options uh, to go basically nuclear um, and go to the mattresses, unfortunately, uh, to try and uh, protect himself. And so we're going to talk about uh, things like rival slates of electors and uh, the role Congress plays in this, um, what the Trump campaign is up to. Um, and again, we hope none of this comes to pass, um, but I don't think we can hide from what Donald Trump uh, is planning to do. And again, I think hopefully conditions will be such that he can tweet away and squawk away and it won't matter. And people are just counting down the minutes, including some Republicans, for him to get out of town on January 20th. Uh, but in a close election, um, I think we're going to see him behave as we've never seen anybody in our politics behave. Um, and um, it will be an ugly period. And again, so hopefully uh, this episode will be something we can look back on and say, thank God that didn't come to pass. Um, but I think we all need to understand um, that the national nightmare doesn't necessarily end on November 3rd or November 4th or November 5th in a close election. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bart Gelman. Bart Gelman, welcome to Campaign HQ. Pleasure to be here. Well, so much to talk to you about. I want to start with um, the debate last night, um, the end of the debate was a discussion uh, very much, I think, uh, uh, you know, in alignment with the piece that you wrote. So you had Donald Trump on the one hand maligning vote by mail, uh, but more importantly, suggesting pretty strongly um, that he's unlikely to accept the outcome of the election. Joe Biden, on the other hand, uh, firmly said, listen, whoever wins is going to be the president. Basically, don't listen to him. Trying to reassure us. Kind of what did you take from that exchange and what should voters take from that exchange? Look, there's always a lot of word salad with Donald Trump, and he has mangled up the message in various ways, but his overall meaning is clear. And I think there is a kind of syllogism in what he has said uh, since the Republican convention and now. Uh, he has said that uh, the mail-in ballots are uh, going to be fraudulent, uh, that millions of ballots will be forged and sold and bought and made up. Uh, and, and there is, if I could just pause for one second and say, absolutely no ground for saying any of that. Right. Uh, uh, this is made up, fabricated nonsense. Uh, but he says it. He says it often. Uh, and he has also said, he said at the Republican convention, that he cannot lose this election unless the election is rigged. Um, he is telling Americans that there is only one legitimate outcome to the election, uh, that either he wins or it's stolen. Americans actually don't get to vote against him. Uh, because if they try, that will be fraudulent. Uh, and he has, moreover, uh, said last night that the Proud Boys uh, should stand by in case their services are needed uh, yeah. if someone's trying to steal the election. Uh, so it, it, I don't think there's actually a lot of ambiguity to his message. And what did you think of Biden's response? I think it's really hard to know how do you how do you respond to someone who has blown to smithereens the, the most fundamental norm of an election, which is that the people get to decide? Uh, Biden appropriately said that he would be governed by the vote, uh, that uh, he would concede the election uh, if, if he lost the vote. Uh, it, he, he did not, I think, very effectively address the outrageousness of the president's response. And I don't know quite how he could have. It's, it's so outrageous on its face 
that um, it, it's hard to <laughs> make it more obvious. Right. The one thing I wish, um, you know, that this was part of every piece of reporting on this, every time Trump gets asked, I wish Biden had gone there directly, um, is, first of all, say, Mr. President, you know, you have voted by mail. Uh, repeatedly, you're going to vote by mail again. Number two, none of the battleground states send out mail ballots automatically. So California might some Republican states do. So it has nothing to do with our race, because I think that's important context. But let's talk about your piece, The Election That Could Break America, which is one of the more uh, disturbing pieces uh, I think I've ever read. Um, and I want to start with the 12th Amendment. So maybe most people listening uh, have some view of what the 12th Amendment is, but talk about the 12th Amendment and why it's important for us to understand what it is in the context of this election. So the 12th Amendment tells you how the president is selected, um, how, how the vote is counted. And it is unfamiliar, unfamiliar, I think, to a lot of Americans because we don't have to uh, bother knowing about it. There are a series of uh, important milestones that take place between election day and inauguration day. It's a 79-day period that I call the interregnum in my article in The Atlantic. Uh, and those are actually the way the president gets selected by our constitution. Uh, it's just that they're normally formalities. Uh, 12th amendment says that on January 6th, that the, the president of the Senate in particular, Mike Pence, um, in the presence of the Senate and the house. So it's a joint meeting, um, shall open the certificates, uh, which are the certificates that are, uh, that, that tell you what each state's electoral votes were cast and the ballots shall then be counted passive voice. And the problem with the passive voice there uh, is that you don't know how the count proceeds if the count is contested. And in particular, if in any of the important states, uh, there is a controversy about who are the electors whose votes get to count, uh, then you've got Congress left to solve that problem and the Constitution is silent on, on how. Right. So, uh, Bart, you really um, are clear in the piece that, of course, if there's a Biden landslide and he were to be declared the winner that night, a lot of the um, parade of horribles you mentioned that may take place in the interregnum won't take place. Um, so uh, but let's talk about so that would be great. And, and my view, well, I'd like to know your view on this. So let's say we don't know on November 3rd, but it's pretty clear from the votes that have been counted that it's going to be uh, a Biden win of some significance. It takes, you know, maybe November 5th or November 6th. In that scenario, do you think these all of the fuel uh, is taken out of the Trump effort to steal the election? I'd say a lot of fuel is taken out, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. I, I take as a premise of my article, and I'm prepared to defend it, that there is no circumstance under which Donald Trump will concede defeat in the election. Uh, I agree with that. That uh, his only answer is going to be that if he's not ahead in the count, then the count is fraudulent. And then the question is just, what does he have he can do about it? What, how much can he do about it under, under various circumstances? What are his constraints and what are his opportunities? Uh, and if he is leading on the election night count uh, in an important state, uh, but we happen to know that uh, there are still 2 million votes left to be counted right. in the state. Like uh, most of the votes, yes, right. Right, I mean, it, and, and we know because of a phenomenon called the blue shift that the overtime count is likely to trend in the direction of Biden. Uh, that's been through for 20 years now, the, the blue shift. Uh, then 
election commentators are going to say, well, Trump is ahead so far. There are 2 million votes left to be counted. Uh, and projections suggest that Biden will do well in that group. Uh, Trump will, will call the count that night. He'll say, that's it. The only count that counts is votes that were enumerated and tabulated on election night. Uh, everything else is a fraudulent attempt to take my victory away. I think that even if Biden has a significant lead, um, he will do what he can do uh, to collect all the inevitable stories. And there always are stories of screw ups around the country where, uh, you know, some votes got damaged in a plumbing leak or uh, something got lost, something got found that there are, there are discrepancies always in an election. Uh, This is an election administered in 10,500 jurisdictions uh, around the country, mostly counties. Uh, There's going to be little episodes that can be blown up on social media and that the president can point to, and claim represent uh, large-scale fraud, just as he's already done with this trivial incident in Pennsylvania in which nine votes were accidentally placed in a trash can. Uh, uh, So he will do his best. And the question is whether, for example, the Republican Party will go along with him in his narrative of massive fraud. Uh, If he can throw up enough fog, uh, then uh, I wouldn't rule out... uh, a controversy that lasts a while. I mean, concession is the way we we end elections in America. That's how it happens. The the losing candidate says, "I I, I accept that the winner has legitimately uh, uh, the the win has legitimately gone to the other side." That's how every election has ended. And if you don't have that, uh, it's very hard to replace it. No, for sure. So I want to focus on before we get to a scenario that is this thing is a lot closer than the polls suggest. Uh, it may take weeks to decide the president in the actual vote count. That, I think, is the most damaging situation for country. But let's focus on one where, um, you know, Biden's not declared the winner election night. Um, but maybe he's won Florida or Florida's super close. There's still going to be some votes to count. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina. Uh, you know, all the expert analysis, including, you know, the Fox boiler room is saying Biden's going to win. But Trump goes out and says, I'm ahead. I've won. All the rest of the votes are fraudulent. In both your reporting for your piece, Barton, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people afterwards. What's your view of what the Republican Party does? So the McConnells of the world, other senators, governors, do they go along with Trump in that scenario? uh, Or do they counsel patients and say, we've got to wait for all the votes to be counted? That's such an important question. And I I really don't know. But here's something to understand about uh, the genius of Donald Trump. And I think he does have a genius. And that is that is for suborning people uh, to, to uh, induce them to cross lines they never imagined that they would cross. For sure. By sticking them into a sort of a gray area first and gradually dragging them over the line into something they they just can't believe that they're saying. And the, the problem is, if, if you asked the mainstream Republicans whether they would uh, try to discredit uh, the results of an election, uh, when the count was clear, they would certainly say no. They would never do such a thing. Uh, but they are already bought into a narrative of fraud. They are already going along with uh, the idea that uh, that mail-in votes uh, have potential for fraud. You saw in 2018 when the overtime count uh, changed results in California and in Arizona and uh, in Florida. Uh, that you had mainstream Republicans like 
Paul Ryan, uh, saying, well, these votes are coming out of nowhere. We have no idea how this is happening. Uh, right. As if there was something uh, suspicious about keeping on counting uh, when the vote count is unfinished. Uh, and I'm afraid uh, that they will be lured far enough across the line of a narrative uh, on voter fraud uh, that they'll keep going when he does. He'll make it hard to get off that train. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think it's going to be maybe the most profound test these elected officials have ever had in their life. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit scared about what's going to happen there. So, so Bart, let's say that, uh, and you know, this is a scenario I think you center on in your piece that, um, the votes are counted and Joe Biden has surpassed 270 electoral votes. Um, you know, one of the things you capture in the piece is, you know, this is not just idle musings. The Trump campaign is actively considering, maybe they're already doing it. Um, you know, organizing rival slates of electors. So essentially you'd have, um, particularly where you have Republicans in control of state legislatures uh, in some of these battlegrounds, you would all have coming up two rival states, uh, slates of electors that ultimately make their way to Congress. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that would happen and what that would mean? Right. Uh, even insiders sometimes don't realize that electors are actually human beings. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, there's 538 of them and, uh, they each get one vote, and the slates of electors are are pre-committed, um, either to Biden or to Trump. And so the the question is whether a state legislature uh, in a state like Pennsylvania, uh, which is a battleground state where the legislature is controlled by Republicans, um, would try to maneuver around the appointment of electors uh, in the usual way, uh, which is by the popular vote in that state, uh, and instead seek to name electors. Uh, name the Trump electors regardless of the voting outcome. Now, the Constitution says that each state legislature may choose electors in the manner of its own choosing. Uh, it's only by tradition uh, and uh, by state legislation that electors are chosen by popular vote. But the argument would be uh, the popular vote is hopeless, hopelessly poisoned by fraud. Um, there are uh, there are, uh, the, the count has been rigged. Uh, we can't trust the certified results. And we're going to have to decide for ourselves, we Republicans, who we think the people intended uh, to, uh, to vote for. And we are going to certify the Trump electors as representing Pennsylvania's uh, uh, results, regardless uh, what the popular vote count uh, says or doesn't say. And this is uh, something that uh, Republicans actually uh, went almost all the way to doing in Florida in the year 2000. Uh, the day that Gore came out to concede the election, which was the day after the Supreme Court ruled in uh, Bush against Gore, uh, the both chambers of the Republican Florida legislature had passed out of committee a resolution that would have appointed Republican electors regardless of the standing of the ongoing litigation about the about the recount, uh, and they were prepared to vote for it on December thirteenth, uh, and would have passed it, uh, but Gore came out and uh, obviated the need for that. So it's it's a it's a move that is uh, known to them, uh, and that I know the Trump campaign is talking about. I can't say what it's planning. So you mentioned Pennsylvania, uh, the state legislature there is controlled by Republicans, but there's a Democratic governor. What role will governors have in this process, if any? Well, it's an important role. Uh, you know, here, 
I'm just uh, working through the logic uh, of the position they would take and the power that they have. So suppose that Pennsylvania's legislature says, the count is bollocks, we're appointing Trump electors. Uh, the governor would then uh, say, uh, I'm certifying the results of the count. And in this scenario, we've got Biden ahead. Uh, and so I am certifying the Biden electors. Both of them send uh, those uh, those votes. They're, they're called certificates of ascertainment to the National Archives and to the president of the Senate, Mike Pence. Uh, and now uh, they have to do that by December 8th, which is the uh, so-called safe harbor deadline. Uh, for a state to choose its electors. But because there is a controversy, uh, because the electors are not a, uh, consensus electors, because they're, they are now, uh, 40 people claiming the right to cast the 20 votes for Pennsylvania. Uh, Congress has to decide, uh, what to do with them. Does it count the votes? Uh, does it, which, and which votes does it count? And Mike Pence is presiding over the joint session of Congress that has to make that, that decision. And that would be the currently the current Congress, as opposed to changes uh, as a result of this election, correct? No, actually, it would be the new Congress. Uh, the so new that Congress, would be the new Congress. Okay. The new Congress is seated on January third. Uh, the oh, date- sorry, I was back in December. So right, so this is right after the January third installation of the new Congress. Right on okay. January sixth is when Congress takes up the votes that the Electoral College cast. Uh, so there's a three week period. Uh, that passes after the Electoral College. And the Electoral College in this scenario has had a meltdown. It, you, right. you have had multiple delegations showing up and purporting to cast the votes of Pennsylvania in this scenario. And, uh, and Congress has to try to make some sense of it. Okay, so yeah, in that three period, we go from the state capitals to the United States capitals. So, um, and you captured this in your piece, but it's worth re- uh, reminding people uh, that if the Democrats do take back the Senate and hold the House, um, whatever Trump does out in the states uh, is going to reach a brick wall in Washington in early January, correct? Yes, with an asterisk, because there's always <laughs> an asterisk in law and there's always an asterisk with right. Trump. So, I mentioned earlier that the uh, 12th Amendment of the Constitution does not tell you how the count is to proceed. It's, it's uh, in passive voice. So what happens if you've been given two conflicting certificates uh, to count? Uh, Congress tried to answer that question after a horrible meltdown in 1876. Uh, some years later, Congress passed the Electoral Count Act, which uh, attempted to instruct Congress about how to decide which electoral votes will count. The problem is it's one of the worst written, most opaque pieces of legislation uh, that exist in the U.S. Code. Uh, it is almost impossible to understand the instructions. And they uh, there's sort of a logic bomb in there in which it could mean opposite things uh, under certain scenarios. And so if you have Democrats in control of the Senate and in control of the House, then both chambers would vote uh, to accept the electors, uh, presumably that representing Biden from Pennsylvania. But because the 12th Amendment says that uh, Mike Pence presides over uh, this count, uh, it would be the position of the Trump campaign that uh, Pence had the unilateral authority to rule on his own re-election and Trump's, uh, and that Pence's uh, vote was the only one that counted in deciding which electors to recognize. They would be saying, in in effect, that the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional if it conflicts with that reading. And so there would still be, now if the Senate Republicans uh, and the House Republicans would go along with this, 
then there would still be a controversy and it, uh, it might fall to uh, the Supreme Court. It also might fall to the power of the president uh, to declare insurrection and, uh, and, and, and enforce Pence's judgment that he'd been reelected. So, listen, my view, and maybe I'm just a naive institutionalist, is um, this scenario only unfolds if we are, you know, just in an exceedingly close vote count tally. I mean, because view, my view is the Murkowski's and Collins is the one. Now, Collins may lose, uh, but the Romney's the well, There's five or six of them, I think, uh, in a, where it's clear, like Biden won. He won by two to three points in battleground states. But in a scenario that's, you know, as close as what we saw in 16 uh, or closer, uh, this is all scary stuff. So the reason Pence is relevant here, right, is even though the no Congress is seated on January 3rd, uh, January 20th is Inauguration Day. For those 17 days, uh, Pence would still provide, preside as president of the Senate, right? That's exactly right. Okay, okay. And and your point is, even if the Democrats were to win back the Senate with a little bit of margin, so as of you know January 3rd in the afternoon, there's 52 Democratic senators and 48 Republicans, Pence would still be the president. You're saying kind of irrespective of where those senators stand on these issues, he could just declare as president of the Senate, I have the full and ultimate and only authority on these matters. Right. The legal and constitutional position would be that it doesn't matter what the Senate votes, uh, that this is a task that falls to the president of the Senate. Uh, it is unilaterally within his power uh, to make a ruling on the electors. Uh, this isn't said anywhere in the Constitution, but there, there was a time in American history uh, when the vice president's role as president of the Senate uh, was seen as quite powerful when it came to the election, uh, the electoral counting. Uh, I mean, this is going to be ultimately not a question of law, but a question of power. Uh, right. And the problem is not, I mean, the danger is not that Trump will, quote unquote, lose and refuse to leave. The system knows what to do about that. Uh, the, the problem will be if Trump is able to prevent a consensus from emerging that there is a clear legal winner, uh, whether there's been any winner at all. If he's able to continue to maintain any claim at all uh, to having won the election uh, uh, based on his uh, claims of fraud or, or uh, his claims of sort of absolute power on the part of the president of the Senate. Uh, as long as he can keep that question open, uh, then he has a big advantage because he's the guy with the presidency already in his hands. So one of the things that really concerns me, Bart, is Trump is moving the goalposts here. And I, I wonder how strategic these census is. I, I, I feel like there's a trap being set, which is, well, Biden can win the election if he wins by a landslide, <laughs> you know, not winning. So basically, uh, if Biden wins by a landslide, and some of the Trump kids have even said that, of course, my father will abide by the election results. So, you know, it seems like we've moved from whoever gets 270 electoral votes is the president to the only way uh, we will prevent a constitutional crisis and Trump's trying to illegally stay in office is if Biden wins by enough, whatever Trump determines is enough. I mean, to me, this is um, deeply disturbing. Um, because I almost see that seeping into the coverage now that, um, well, Biden's got to win by enough to prevent Trump from going completely batshit crazy. <laughs> well, look, the system is already stacked, as you and your listeners very well know. Uh, so yeah. that, uh, you can't win by merely three or four percent of the popular vote. You got to get up to five percent or, or, or so before you have any reasonable confidence of winning the Electoral College. Uh, so you can't win by a, a teeny little bit. You got to win by a fair amount just to get you over the electoral college line. And it's true that there are 
uh, people now saying, uh, well, if Biden wins by a landslide, that that avoids um, this trouble. That's not something that Trump himself is saying. It, Trump Trump is defining the election in, as one in which he cannot lose. Uh, right, unless it's a, 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 a squeaker or a landslide, it doesn't make a difference. Um, if Joe Biden wins, it can only have been by fraud. That That is the tautological meaning of what Trump has said up to date. So, Bart, as you've really researched and dug into these questions, you mentioned the Supreme Court. Trump was clear again in the debate last night that he thinks the court should come in and save the day for him. So, uh, again, I want to focus on a scenario where Biden uh, is declared the winner uh, in enough battleground states to uh, surpass 270. Um, Every election expert, probably most Republicans who aren't in office anymore, say he won. But Trump's maintaining it was stolen. He's got enough support in the Republican Party uh, to play his strategy out here. On what grounds would the Supreme Court uh, weigh uh, in on Trump's side here? You're past my point of competence. I really don't know. The the Supreme Court would presumably rule only on constitutional questions. So it could rule on the question of whether Pence or the House and Senate uh, uh, voting separately but meeting jointly uh, decide who the electors are. It's unlikely that uh, the Supreme Court would try to become the final uh, the final authority on the application of state and county law about how the votes are counted uh, in each state. Uh, honestly, I don't know. It's just imagine the humiliating position of being uh, a justice of the Supreme Court appointed by Trump. Uh, being instructed publicly, as 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 they are being instructed now, that their services will be needed to keep him in office. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it is so far beyond the pale to say that, uh, and and I wonder how any self-respecting justice could even vote to do so after this. Right. I mean, I'm not sure Thomas would be bothered by it, but uh, maybe Alito, but the rest probably would be, including Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, would be my guess. I actually strongly doubt that the Supreme Court wants to be involved in this election. I, right. I think it was traumatic in 2000, uh, not only for the country, but also for the court, and that Roberts, right. uh, Roberts yeah. clearly worries about the legitimacy of the court. Who says that these unelected nine people get to decide momentous affairs of state for us if, if they are seen once again, as casting uh, a partisan vote uh, for who's the president of the United States, uh, I, I think their legitimacy would be uh, very seriously at risk. I think they'd know it. Yeah. No, I agree with that from a Roberts perspective. So one of the scenarios you mentioned uh, in your article is uh, in a situation where there have been rival electors uh, passed up from the states to the Capitol. Um, and you've got disagreement um, in the chambers between both. Uh, you've got the specter looming that if this doesn't get settled by January 20th uh, at noon Eastern time, Nancy Pelosi becomes president. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, uh, again, this is all hopefully fantastical. And I, I talked before you came on, I'll remind people today, uh, focus on the election and a decisive outcome is the best way to avoid all this. Uh, but I think we've learned with Trump that um, he generally means what he says. So I think we have to spend some time on the scenario. But talk about the scenario where you've got Pelosi uh, as the next president sort of in the background. There is an emergency fallback in the Constitution, uh, which states that if, if Congress is unable to complete the count that begins on January 6th, if it's unable to ascertain the electoral vote and the process remains unfinished, uh, then the acting president 
or at 12.01 p.m. on January 20th, will be the Speaker of the House, who must resign, by the way, as Speaker in order to accept that position. Uh, and that, that, that the Pelosi would be the acting president until Congress was able to ascertain the results of the electoral vote. Uh, now, there's another scenario in which Congress finds that neither party has reached the threshold of 270 votes, uh, perhaps because a state delegation has been disqualified because of its conflicting electoral votes. Uh, and now nobody's got 270. In that case, as you and your listeners will know, the, uh, the contest is thrown to the House itself, which votes state by state with a single vote for each state delegation. Uh, and on current composition, uh, the House of Representatives has 26 delegations uh, that are controlled by Republicans, even though there's a Democratic majority. And that's unlikely to change, even if the Democrats win, let's say, eight or 10 seats, which is probably the outer bound of what's possible in this election. They would still have uh, a majority of the chambers, right? Um, so uh, you mentioned the election of 1876 in your piece, where there was a stalemate. Some really ugly compromises uh, were put forth uh, to settle the dispute uh, between the uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden camps. Can you uh, remind people a little bit of, about that and if there are lessons from that election? that, uh, you know, could still be relevant today that much time later. So the Democrats in, uh, in, in that year were, uh, were the villains when it came to race relations in the United States. Uh, yeah, they were for a long time, yeah. For a long time. Yeah. And uh, the Democrats, Samuel Tilden, won the popular vote um, after a campaign of just grotesque voter repression uh, preventing black people from coming to the polls uh, throughout the South. Hayes objected to the way the, the counts were done, and, uh, and allies of his, Rutherford Hayes, the Republican, sent uh, rival slates of electors uh, in Florida, for example, and elsewhere. Uh, four state delegations in all had competing slates of electors, one representing electors for Hayes, one for Tilden, uh, and it went to Congress to decide. They did not yet have an Electoral Count Act, uh, and Congress uh, was deadlocked uh, on this question and agreed finally to appoint a sort of high-minded tribunal composed of uh, five Democrats, five Republicans, and five Supreme Court justices um, who would meet as a special tribunal to decide who the electors were, whose votes would count. Uh, and uh, they, pushed, they, they pushed the election to Hayes. So now the Democrats in Congress decided to, uh, to start stalling. They refused to allow the formal vote count that actually decides the president to take place. And their play was to, uh, was, was to delay all the way to inauguration day uh, when the, uh, the Speaker of the House, who was a Democrat, would become the acting president. That was their plan. Uh, and meanwhile, there were generals uh, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and colonels in charge of regiments around the country starting to declare their allegiance about which side they were going to support. And there uh, were rival plans being laid to inaugurate two different people uh, on Inauguration Day, which that year was in March. And it was not until right up until two days before inauguration that Samuel Tilden gave in. And he gave in because the Democrats won a promise from the Republicans, in effect, to end Reconstruction, uh, to end the presence of federal troops from the North in the South, uh, to protect the rights of newly emancipated black people. And so this is sort of a shame on our history. Uh, yes. And Tilden also bowed uh, 
to the prospect that the incumbent president, whose term was rapidly running out, was uh, Ulysses Grant, a Republican, was threatening to declare martial law to prevent Tilden from being inaugurated uh, and to deploy U.S. forces, if need be, uh, to ensure the inauguration of his opponent, Rutherford Hayes. Uh, and so it was uh, a not very subtle threat of military force that helped resolve that election. And that is not a precedent that we should look forward to this year, because this year the chaos candidate and the commander-in-chief will be the same man. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, now, if Trump was going to extort anything for stepping down, it would be maybe to pay back his debts and, um, you know, a, a promise of uh, no prosecution since he's such a narcissist. But that, that is scary. So I wonder... Um, you mentioned before, um, you know, and again, this is well down the line uh, in terms of scenarios. But if we are in an absolute stalemate in early January, uh, Trump uh, declaring insurrection. I'm just curious, as, as you did your reporting for this piece and conversations you've had subsequently, because I'm sure it got the attention of many in our military. Do you have any sense of how they're viewing this question uh, and some of these scenarios? I, I think uh Every uh, instrument of uh, legal authority and force has to be viewing this with dread. I, I mean, it is not something that uh, the armed services uh, want anything to do with uh, getting involved in, uh, in in resolving the results of an election of deciding which commander in chief to listen to. Uh, and I think it's important for every member of the chain of command. To remember to, to to remind himself or herself uh, that you are obliged uh, to disobey unlawful orders. The the, uh, the the problem once again is that if you have an attorney general who's prepared to find executive authority in Trump uh, to uh, invoke the insurrection insurrection act or any of dozens of emergency powers uh, that he holds in reserve and is able to find. A, uh, a legal pretext uh, that wouldn't uh, probably pass muster with uh, with law school professors uh, and might not eventually pass muster in court. Um, uh, the fear is that he could control events on the ground for long enough to make a difference. Uh, I think this is unlikely, but I'm, I'm just going to ask your, uh, this is more, I assume, your opinion than, than based on um, you know, comments you've had from reporting. Do you think there's any chance Roberts, uh, uh, you know, and the court or some of the uh, military leadership may be doing some back channeling here uh, pre-election to just say, we are just not going to be part of this play? Well, I would love to know the answer to that question. That That's uh, fascinating. And it, it there, there are enormous institutional inhibitions uh, against doing that. I mean, it might be that the greatest patriotic duty that they have to their country right now is to say, I want everyone to understand we're going to play this straight uh, and that we're not going to uh, tolerate any extra constitutional action uh, and pass that by back channel. That would be an act of considerable patriotism, patriotism I think, right now. And it's completely foreign uh, to the normal institutional norms. Uh, right either the military or the Supreme Court. I mean, I want to make it clear, I'm not a doom and despair guy. Uh, I'm not predicting that uh, all the terrible things will happen. 
Of I course, think yeah. I think it's absolutely essential for people to understand, though, that this is not a normal election or a normal candidate, uh, that it's not going to go as normal precisely because there is one candidate who is not willing to lose uh, right. and will have the power to disrupt the count and disrupt the election itself uh, for some time to come after election day. So it's going to, it's going to be a mess. Uh, and I think if people are prepared for that and their, their wits are about them and everyone does what they're supposed to do, uh, having been forewarned, uh, then the country can get through this. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think it's really important. I think there's a lot of people out there who are sort of mentally in a place. I just have to make it 34 more days and the nightmare will be over. And I think um, maybe it will be if it's a blowout and it's clear early. But I think people need to prepare um, to basically um, steal themselves. This could be pretty ugly all the way through January. So I'm curious, you know, we saw back in 2000, uh, Bart, that our system, as it turns out, is not very well situated to handle a national presidential election that comes down to a few hundred votes in one state. And I think what we're learning now is it, there are also some holes. Your reporting, I think, identifies some important holes uh, in our Constitution uh, and some of our laws around elections when, uh, you know, somebody in power uh, is uh, sort of destructively looking at all the different ways they can exploit um, vagueness uh, or um, holes uh, in some of our sacred documents. So I'm wondering, um, should there be an effort, uh, you know, here in the coming years to try and tighten some of these holes up so that we, um, you know, basically block some of the exit ramps uh, for anybody in the future who might have autocratic aims? I would really like to believe that there are holes that can be patched that would prevent the kind of behavior that I'm talking about in this article that, that would prevent a uh, sort of boundaryless president from exploiting ambiguities. And I suspect that you could make some progress along those lines. And I also suspect that you can't close all those loopholes that we don't have, well, put it this way. It's tempting to think of an election as being like a sports game where there's an umpire and the umpire calls balls and strikes and, and says, which points count and eventually blows the whistle and says, the game's over. You win, you lose. Uh, and it doesn't matter how much either side belly aches. Uh, they right. still, th th you've, you've lost if you've lost. There is no umpire like that in our system, uh, who has jurisdiction over the whole thing, who, uh, can settle the questions of, uh, county and state, uh, and, and local legal controversy, um, who can certify a vote count, who can settle the, the, uh, the ambiguities in the federal law, um, who can resolve, uh, the, uh, the, the multiple pass through the Electoral Count Act and so on. You, you, you have a candidate who was willing to say, no, I didn't lose. Uh, and I'm going to go talk to someone else and can, and can find some other officiant uh, with different jurisdiction and different rule book uh, to go to for some time to come after the election. And that's the chaos that Trump is capable of, uh, of, of bringing to this election. And I think unless there is a very big blowout, um, that he's likely uh, to go some of the way down this path as far as he can. Maybe he's uh, with his friend Vladimir Putin watched the 1972 men's basketball Olympic game <laughs> where, uh, in fact, the game was over in the U.S. won, but uh, it was stolen from them. So uh, I'm curious, Bart, uh, last question for you, and you've been very generous with your time. So I certainly hear from a lot of people, I'm sure you do as well, who are very anxious about this post-election period. Uh, I think that was the case prior to your piece. I think a lot of people have consumed your piece and it's added to their anxiety. What's your message to them, just the average citizen out there who 
is worried that, you know, the one thing they thought was sacred uh, in our country was we have elections. And that's how we decide who's in charge. And we've always had peaceful transfers of powers and we've had losers concede. Uh, who are worried that are we heading to a place uh, of just complete chaos and misery? Kind of what's your message to them? Again, and I think we should both find ways to reassure people, but also not hide truths from them. Right. So, I mean, I, I think it dulls the reflexes if you assume things will go normally. Uh, and if you assume that the winner will automatically be the person who has the most votes. Uh, because there will be a concerted effort to prevent that from happening. Uh, because of the way this scenario plays out with the blue shift and the mail-in ballots, I've decided myself that I'm going to vote in person uh, because I don't want there to be a big disparity between the same-day results and the overtime count uh, because that uh, that is a recipe uh, for chaos on the street. You should volunteer as a poll worker if you can. You should make sure that all your friends understand that it's normal for the uh, vote count to change after election night and that it certainly is going to change after election night this year. You should uh, make sure that your mayor and police chief are thinking about how to deploy law enforcement uh, on election day to protect the vote and to keep outsiders with bad motives uh, from coming in and, and mounting disruptions. If you're a state legislator, uh, you really have to think about what, what your lines are. Are you really willing to let yourself uh, override the popular vote and appoint uh, electors for partisan advantage? And if you're not, then, then know that you have to start drawing that line early. Right. Uh, I mean, ev everybody who's got a role in this, you know, I talked already about the, uh, in the military, the, the obligation to disobey unlawful orders. I mean, Everyone who's asked to do the wrong thing needs to be ready ahead of time to say no, uh, because it will seem somehow normalized in the moment, and you won't have a lot of time to decide. Uh, that is great advice for people who are listening to this podcast and just generally, uh, here's the things you can do. Um, we can all wring our hands a little bit, but uh, we want to spend most of our time focusing on what we can do. I guess just, you know, Bart, you've covered the world for decades and helped uh, bring us uh, such great uh, insight and visibility uh, into our important moments in, in, in recent American history. I'm just curious as someone who's uh, spent a lot of time around the world, uh, focused a lot on Obviously, you've covered everything from, uh, you know, wars and terrorism, um, but but also forms of government. Like, did you ever th think we'd find ourselves here in the United States of America? No, I, I absolutely never imagined we'd find ourselves here. I would have thought it was a bad dream. I, I, uh, I am more worried for my country now than I've ever been. I have never written a story in which I broke character, uh, broke out of the third person uh, and started addressing readers directly with what I thought they needed to know and what I thought they needed to do. Uh, that's unique in my experience. And uh, it was the magnitude of this story that, that took me there. Well, listen, thank you for this story. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's raising some important uh, questions and, and potential scenarios that none of us hope come to pass for us all uh, to get smart about and, and all your work through the years. And uh, look forward to following you in the, the next uh, 34 days. Uh, as we count down to the election and I guess the, that period between then and early January. Thank you very much for having me here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks.